Garish Nation. Notre Dame improves to seven and three on the season with a recurring theme of this season coming back once again, a very frustrating 35-32, closer than it should have been win over the Navy midshipmen. But more importantly for Garish Talk, I am very excited to finally once again get Mike back in the booth rejoining us after his honeymoon hiatus. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's uh it's great to be back. I gotta rewind to where I was at where Notre Dame football was leading into my wedding weekend. And so that was right after the Stanford loss. So going into the going into the wedding, going into the honeymoon could not have been in a lower place. And then as soon as the wedding weekend kicks off, UNLV, I wouldn't say that was a banner performance, but we, we at least did what we were supposed to. And then after that, we wrapped. You also weren't technically married yet at time of beating UNLV. So things have really improved since the actual nuptials occurred. That's true. So um, my theory is leading up to the wedding, as we were getting close, the team was starting to build momentum a little bit. They were looking a little bit better. And then once it happened, it was essentially a honeymoon gift. Then we had Syracuse and we had, and we had, uh, Clemson obviously was the, was a really big one after that. It was interesting trying to watch these games internationally because there really is not a direct way to just get a good feed. So I had to get a little bit creative. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go into too many details here. I don't want to implicate myself with anything, but I did what I had to do to to watch the games. But uh, <laughs> but the honeymoon was fantastic. I I cannot envision a better venue, a, a better location to watch games than on the beach in French Polynesia. So it was the honeymoon. All elements of it were great, and then these games actually provided a lot of entertainment too. So it was a nice little, nice little break from what I was doing otherwise. Spending a lot of time at the beach, going snorkeling. Boom! Notre Dame's biggest win, really the biggest, most impressive win that I've seen as a fan. We beat Clemson a couple of years ago, but this just felt different. That was just the total, total beatdown that we've never seen from a from a, by of a top team like Clemson. So glad to be back. Glad that we got back on track. Uh, if we start faltering, maybe that means I need to go on another honeymoon. seems like there could be some correlation there. We're both, we're both data guys to me. It seems like there could be some I was gonna, there. I was going to say, I can't believe I thought I'd ever say this, but if you believe in data and, and superstitions as, as most Notre Dame football fans, I think do, do, do we need more fall weddings? Is, is that the real learning from the, you know, got, got the fall wedding during UNLV and we're, we're three and oh after. So, um, lo- love to see it. Great to have you back in the seat. We're going to recap the Navy game, look ahead to Boston College, and then pretty excited for our third segment this week. We're going to do a deep dive on how to understand pro football focus and their grades and their stats. It's, it's something we reference a lot. The grading, of course, subjective and I think has mixed opinions among college football fans of, of how much value to put in them. We, we do reference them quite a bit on the show, and so we're going to give a pretty balanced view on what we like about pro football focus things that kind of frustrate us and, and things where, especially as we've gone into year two here of the podcast, we've probably moved away from referencing some of the pro football focus grades, focus more on their stats. We'll, we'll dive into why that is and, and help provide uh, some context on one of the more popular um, data sites, not just for college football, but also for the NFL. And as always, a reminder, you can find us on Google, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts. We are there. Most importantly, please give us a review. Please download the show. Sign up to get those weekly downloads. Subscribe to the show um, on on any of your pot, uh, podcast platforms, and tell a friend. Spread the word. Garish talk is growing. Um, we've you know we can't believe we're ten games into the season already with just a few shows left here in the second season of Garish Talk. 
but please uh, spread the word, tell your friends. And if you got any questions or topics you'd like to cover, um, we're on Twitter. Reach out, let let us know, and we'll we'll be sure to yeah bring in the content. One final thought. Thank you to our guest host for filling in when I was out. I thought they did a fantastic job. So I think it's we clearly have a deep bench of of broadcast talent. So that's that's my takeaway from all this. So just really really good yeah, job. Danny Mike two point incredible episodes. Thanks for filling in. Now with that being said, let's uh, let's dive into the show. What's your problem? What's your problem? Last practice of the season, and this asshole thinks it's the Super Bowl. Notre Dame is becoming a consistently inconsistent team, a dangerously close 35-32 escape against the middies of Navy. We are now 5-0 and against the spread as an underdog or single-score favorite, and 0-5 against the spread when we are a two-score or larger favorite. So basically, Notre Dame plays up to the competition and performs really, really well against the five toughest opponents we've had this year and have really faltered and played down to the competition um, in just a frustrating fashion now for, for the fifth time here as a heavy favorite. Mike, initial reactions from the game? So you called out our record against the spread. It's getting pretty remarkable at this point how closely we're following that. I I was kind of with you with your prediction last week, Brett, where you're saying uh, coming off of the Clemson game, I think this is finally the game where Notre Dame is just going to get it together and finally punch out a strong win against the spread where we're big favorites. Fortunately, we obviously didn't do that. It looked like we were going to in the first half, so that's my first point. We really started out, out about as well as possible. We had a dominant first half. Featuring, we had a, a punt block. It just seems like we're having one of these every single week now. Brian Mason, best in the business when it comes to special teams. It really is. It's something I've never seen anything quite like this in college football before, where there's just such a high rate of punt blocks. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But again, it's just anytime a team is, is about to punt the ball, it feels like there's a pretty good chance. Not pretty good, but it seems like there's a very legitimate chance that we might be able to block it. And I can't remember ever feeling like that watching any football team. And then Drew Pine, Drew Pine actually looked really good in the first half. Five touchdowns going 14 for 16. There were moments where Navy would drop eight and Pine actually looked pretty good navigating that, uh, navigating that look, which is something that we couldn't really say earlier in the year. But then despite all the good vibes, all the, all the encouraging signs that we saw in the first half, we just couldn't quite hold on to that momentum and we scrape out a very frustrating win really falter in the second half navy ball control coupled with our total offensive ineptitude resulted in a 19 to nothing second half in favor of the middies and at the end of it it got to the point where we needed an onside kick to escape if you had told me that at the end of the first half that would have been very surprising to me it felt like we were ready for just a blowout we were ready to just completely pull away put in the backups and just really demoralizing that it got to the point where we needed to recover an onside kick at the end uh, in order to actually finalize and uh, finish off the game. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy how stark the difference was. So in, in this game, both teams had a success rate of Notre Dame's was 33% and Navy's was 32%. So frankly, neither offense moved the ball particularly well. But in the case of Notre Dame, our first half success rate was a whopping 46%, really good. Offenses want to be in the high 40s, so that, that's right where we want to be. And in the second half, it was 8%. Um, an 8% success rate, less than 1 in 10 plays um, in the second half was successful. We'll get into the offense um, a little bit more later, but 
maybe starting with the defense, we'll be pretty quick here. We talked about this in the preview. It's hard to draw takeaways when you go up against the triple option. It's a weird week of prep. You get one week to prepare. It's pretty useless for any other game of the season. So I think our biggest takeaway is don't look at this game and think anything more or less of the defense other than a weird game where we built a huge lead and and had some, you know, just baffling letdowns. But also context matters. And what I'm about to say is going to sound like a bunch of excuses. And any one of them alone is an excuse. Taken together, though, I do think it's important context to kind of understand how we got in this position in the game. Um, there are a couple very questionable pass interference and defensive holding calls that were honestly just really weak flags. I'm, I'm not going to say they're bad calls, but they were weak contact. Um, they extended Navy drives. One of them was on a fourth down. Another one of them took away an interception that resulted in a touchdown just a couple plays later. So this is a much different, um, and actually that PI was on third down as well. So, you know, two drives were really extended by way of some questionable calls. Another thing in this game, Marcus Freeman and Al Golden, um, they admitted that they went to a prevent defense in the second half, knowing that going to kind of a shell protection to prevent bigger passing plays was probably not going to stop the option very well, but it was going to make them have a long drive and use their timeout. So when we were up by 11 in the fourth quarter, we gave up an 11-play, 90-yard drive that made Navy use all their timeouts. Then all we had to do is recover the onside kick and kneel the ball. So it was almost like intentional to make them move more methodically to burn timeouts, but it just made them the game closer than it otherwise had to be. Um, injuries were a big factor in this game. Brandon Joseph, JD Bertrand were both out. Jack Kaiser missed the fourth quarter and especially the Bertrand injury. Um, what that led to is junior Tuolamaka got the start. Freeman said they were actually waffling between Tuolamaka and Prince Kali, but went with Tuolamaka because he's about 30 pounds heavier than Kali. He's a middle linebacker that just frankly doesn't have a lot of reps and was in for situational play. Um, he was the one that kept getting burned on that FB dive option where I think they had three runs of 20 or 30 yards or more. That was really their whole offense in the first half. He immediately gets taken out and Prince Kali plays pretty much rest of the game. So, you know, tough look for Tulamaka, but a guy we're not really always banking on. And then time of possession. Like in the second half, the defense clearly wore down because they were on the field, I think, like 25 of the 30 minutes in the second half and just got no support from the offense. So... I think the combination of injuries, getting worn down, some questionable calls that otherwise, you know, they did their job to get off the field. And then some coaching stuff that, look, it was a chess decision and it worked out. We won the game. I just never liked the prevent defense, especially against a triple option. Um, I'm saying all of that here on a bit of a long tangent. Don't overread into this defense. We're a couple plays away from winning this game by 30 and like no one's talking about giving up 20 points and instead score from their perspective looks a lot closer, but I still put a lot more of that back on the offense. I agree with all that. I think this context is really important. I mean, to me, I think the injured players, I think that didn't get enough attention. Going against Navy requires a lot of discipline from your defensive players. And so if you're throwing in to Lamaca, guys who are really inexperienced, that's not a good situation for them to be in. They're just inclined to perhaps misread certain situations as you mentioned, Tula Maka kept getting burned on that fullback dive. You mentioned they ran it three times. 
I think I read a stat that said those three those three uh, plays they got over 100 yards on it. It was like 106 or something. That's a really big impact, and you can attribute a lot of that directly to a young guy being in a situation where he doesn't a whole lot of experience and he's uh, making mistakes. And he's gonna I think he's gonna be a great player down the line, but that's not a good situation for him to be in. And then on these questionable calls, you know it's bad when the broadcast team is calling them into question. For me, that's kind of my that's kind of my pulse of whether or not I'm being a biased fan or not. If, if I think the refs are making bad calls and the broadcast crew isn't saying anything, then I kind of hold back a little bit. But once they start, once they start questioning it themselves, that's when I feel like I might be onto something. So, but I think these were all good points. And then on the strategy with the prevent defense, I don't love it. I'm with you on it. It, it worked. Technically, they didn't have enough time to win the game, but it felt like we allowed it to get a lot closer than, than we needed it to. And I think Pine's pick in the second half, I think that turnover, I think that at, that basically, gave Navy a little bit more time than we probably thought that uh, a little, some time that we probably thought that they wouldn't have. So that probably made it a little more narrow uh, than expected. So overall, if, if we get healthy, it's a weird defense we're playing. I wouldn't say that I see it as any sort of indictment of the defense uh, considering how good we looked the week before, just kind of a weird game. If we look really bad against BC, then maybe I'll start, I'll start to be concerned there, but I think you, uh, you have to kind of take all this with, you have to take all those facts that you just mentioned you have to take all that into account when you're evaluating the defense. I'm going to add a couple more points real quick. So when I was watching the game, I thought the tackling, and I told this to Brett when uh, in our group text, I thought the tackling was was pretty bad. But then when we took a step back, the tackling rate actually was not that bad. It was a uh, 7% missed tackle rate, which is actually a pretty good rate. But the thing was is that we were often out of position at times and would whiff. And so the opportunity didn't necessarily qualify as a tackling opportunity. So... Basically, in many situations, we weren't even close enough to make a play on the ball carrier. So technically, was not a missed tackle. It was just a bad read. So basically, when we were in a position to wrap them up, we wrapped them up. But the problem was more that we just weren't always in a good position. And then one other thing to call out is just how many line yards we were allowing. So how much push was Navy's offensive line getting? And the answer is not that much. So we only allowed 2.1 line yards. They got some. They got some chunk plays later in the game when we gave that uh give them that softer coverage with the prevent defense but overall we weren't we were certainly weren't letting them push us around so i i think overall you know when you factor that in th- those are a few uh i think the line yards is a bit of a redeeming stat when it comes to to the defensive performance uh against navy yeah i mean if if, if you said that Navy was going to beat us on chunk plays running the triple option. I probably would have said that's really low probability. They had five plays over 20 yards in this game, which is about average. Um, you know, the average team gets about four or five plays over 20 yards per, per game in, in a college football game, but they did that running the triple option in a very not explosive offense, right? So if, if you said we would have controlled the line of scrimmage and given up 2.1 line yards against a triple option style that's trying to grind out four or five yards a play, I just said that's great. Um, the chunk plays, like we talked about, especially on the FB dive, and then in the second half, some of the passing game got got a little leaky. Like, look, it's just it's the triple option, and I'm gonna not read too much into the defense in this one. Flipping to the offense, where I've maybe got a little bit more concerns. I'm not quite sure I've ever seen a stat line like I'm about to read in the off in the first half the offense had 18 first downs for 357 yards so they were on pace for 700 yards of offense followed by a second half where they had just one first down for six total yards 
what drove that was no, Navy's boomer bust defense, which we highlighted this on the preview. They are pretty much an all out risk reward defense. They are second in havoc generated and they are 129th in explosiveness allowed. So they basically try to disrupt everything they can. They're willing to give up good play, you know, big plays. If they give up a big play, they say, Oh, well, we'll go milk the clock. We'll wear you down. We'll play ball control. And that's exactly what we saw. They basically put eight guys in the box the entire game. They blitzed like none other I've ever seen. Um, and it absolutely didn't work in the first half. Like, I think that's one of the things here that's being mis, you know, explained, especially, you know, by a lot of beat writers, but also message boards of, oh my gosh, does Boston College and USC now have a blueprint to beat Notre Dame's offense? Like, yes, in the second half, but they were doing the same thing. They were giving no safety help in the first half. They were bringing six, seven, eight, you know, jailhouse blitzes, all out blitzes in both the first half and the sixth half. Sorry, in both the first half and second half to the tune of blitzing on 68% of Drew Pine's dropbacks. But in the first half, Pine went 10 for 12 against those blitzes for 137 yards and three touchdowns. In the second half, inexplicably, we just didn't make any of those same adjustments, any of those same audibles. I don't know if we're trying to get more conservative with the play call, if Pine was missing reads. I don't know what it was, but what happened was he wasn't even getting the ball off and was taking very long three-step dropbacks when it was very clear they were bringing an all-out blitz. And then he took five sacks that basically ended every single drive with with a sack and, and never really gave the offense a chance. So, Mike, in this one, I'm not too worried that this is going to be something that Boston College or, you know, USC is going to try to replicate because for one half, it's very clear we knew how to solve for this type of an offense. But what's your take on how it just absolutely changed and we became incapable of dealing with the blitz when in the first half we were so good against the blitz? So I agree with pretty much everything you just said there, Brett. I I think I I don't really have much concern moving forward because these types of play calls are very aggressive, gimmicky type play calls. We were joking with each other. We were joking with our friends that it felt like we were just playing that guy in Madden, you know, that friend who just – you know, they're always calling like weird, weird punt blocks or they're just doing four verts every play, just really bizarre play calls. It felt like that's what we were dealing with against Navy. And those types of plays, we, as you said, we, we showed in the first half that we were able to address those. But generally, in my opinion, I feel like those types of plays are easier, easier to address in general than other types of schemes, other types of plays. So I, I think if other teams attempted to do that, We've already shown, at least in the first half, that we can address it. And I feel like it's something to pretty, that's pretty easy to scheme around. You just need quick passing plays. You do that, your, your receivers are in one-on-one coverage. You, you should be able to get a lot of big plays. So I, for me, I think the second half was more a, a feeling of confusion. It felt like if we just kind of went back to what we were doing more in the first half, we could have just easily put it away and not allowed them to get any momentum getting after Pine, sacking our QB. So I'm not entirely sure. Again, I, you kind of mentioned it too. I, I don't know if it was if it's more on Reese, if it's more on Pine. It's probably a mix of both. We don't know exactly what the play calls were, so that's kind of what the challenge is. But I do think moving forward, if if BC tries to do something similar, I, I would be surprised if we struggled with it. I feel like Reese should have play calls that should be able to easily address it. Pine showed that if the 
get, if he does get those the play calls that are meant to address it, he can actually make them pay. One other thing I actually want to call out is I saw Pete Sampson tweet something. I think it was either today or yesterday, but an area that Pine has struggled in quite a bit has been when teams. So maybe they, they did a lot of blitzing, but they also did a little bit of a. Uh, some play calling where they, they dropped eight guys into coverage. And that's an area where Pine has actually really struggled this year. When Navy actually attempted to do that against Pine, Pine actually looked pretty good this game. So they tried it, didn't work. Then they kind of went back to the blitzing, particularly aggressive blitzing. And then in the second half, that worked for a myriad reasons. Um, so I thought that was a little encouraging uh, to me that he was a- he was actually finally able to make a team pay for doing that. Again, we've talked about Navy's pass defense it's not very good. So if there were a team that he was able to pick apart, I guess if if they tried dropping eight, Navy's probably the team that would do it. If he does it against a better pass defense, I think that that you know that that would be a more encouraging sign. But to me, it's I don't know. It was just kind of a frustrating second half. It felt like there were, in theory, we had we had fixes available that could easily address it. And I think maybe because it seems like there should have been easy fixes to address it in the second half, that's why I'm not as concerned moving forward. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up the drop eight. We've actually talked about how Pine kind of struggles getting from his first read to his second read to his third read to his fourth read. And so other teams don't blitz him that much. Um, coming into this game, Drew Pine's been blitzed on 32% of dropbacks. So, you know, really good defenses in Clemson and Syracuse, among others, have studied the tape, have watched the film, and, and they've said, if we just make Drew Pine work through our defense, um, He's, he's going to struggle and, and, you know, we'll kind of force him into mistakes without putting him in under pressure. And so he's only been blitzed on 32% of dropbacks. In this game, that actually flipped the exact opposite way and he was blitzed on 68% of dropbacks. So Navy very much went a different way on, on Drew Pine. And coming into this game, despite basically having twice as many dropbacks where Pine wasn't blitzed as he was blitzed, when blitzing, he has just as many touchdowns. So his touchdown rate on blitzes is twice as high as it is on non-blitzes. So he does really well when he's not under pressure. Um, in fact, he's averaging more yards per attempt when when, when the blitz comes than, than when the blitz doesn't come. Um, you know, even if you just look at when there's pressure or no pressure, when he's under pressure, six touchdowns to one interception. Like, he's a good quarterback or as good of a quarterback when he's under pressure as when he's not. And one of the things I was thinking about in this game, there was a play in the first half where a huge blitz came and we did the scan read offense where we kind of saw the blitz was coming. There's 15 seconds left on the play clock. Play clock. The offense looks over to the sidelines and they clearly make an audible. Audric estimate shifts out. He becomes the hot route. We run a slant to Audric estimate, catches it, scores a touchdown. Actually in the same exact play against Toledo last year when Chris Dyree broke it for 50 yards. Um, like identical play call. In the second half, we stopped doing the scan read offense where the, you know, offense kind of pauses at the line, they get a read from the defense, and then they look to the sideline to the audible. A lot of fans, for some reason, don't like this. Um, it, it comes up all of the time on message boards. I've actually heard it from friends and family of how, like, it's the coaching staff not trusting players or something. I, I don't really buy that. It's just a way to get plays in. And a lot of times we don't even call a play in the first instance before the scan read. We just go out there with a dummy play, put one guy in motion to see what the defense does and how they shift. And then when we have that data point, we go and call in the actual play we want to call in by signaling on the sideline. It felt like we just stopped doing that in the second half of this game. And then Drew Pine was left on his own to just call whatever predetermined play was called. 
And if it was a blitz, he had no ability to react to it. So my bigger takeaway on this is, like, if a quarterback sees seven guys blitzing, he's got to know to get the ball out. I, I just have a really hard time blaming that on Tom Reese. Like, if if the guy, you know, if you see seven people running at you, your thought can't be, oh, I've got time. Let me take two more steps back in the pocket. It's got to be, oh, my gosh, blitz is coming. Ball's got to get out fast. And so I put this more on Drew Pine, and the only thing I could maybe think about was we stopped doing it, at least from what I could see in the game, we stopped doing as many of the scan read audibles to the sideline, and I thought that maybe would have made a difference in this game. Um the other question I got for you, Mike, switching from the past game, which again was so incredible in the first half, incredibly frustrating in the second half, but the run game disappeared. Um, we had three line yards per rush, which means the offensive line was generating three yards of movement downfield, and we only ran for two yards per carry. Now, that was with a lot of sacks. So if you exclude the sacks, it was 3.3 yards per carry, but that basically meant we got 0.3 yards from our running backs that weren't generated um, by the offensive line. And I get it. They were putting eight guys in the box, and they were either going to come to stop the run, and if they didn't stop the run, they were just going to blitz if it was a pass. But Syracuse put eight guys in the box. Clemson was putting eight guys in the box, and we ran just fine. Like, what happened? Like, like Why weren't we able to run the ball in this game? Yeah, so important to call out. So actually, I saw a stat. So you mentioned three line yards per game. I, I I just pulled up the box score from collegefootballdata.com. And actually, maybe they updated. Sometimes they do this. It actually shows, right now they're showing that we actually got 2.1 line yards per game, which is... Oh, uh, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I might have had that reversed with Navy. Yeah. I, I think I wrote that wrong in in our notes. Yeah. Yep, my, my bad on that. But so the take is, our, I think certainly Navy did a lot of aggressive things on defense. One was that they, they really sold out against the run but as you mentioned Syracuse and Clemson did this as well um and for Clemson who is supposed to have a dominant defensive line we actually were able to to bully them quite a bit to an extent that you wouldn't expect with a a team at that talent level Navy clearly nowhere near Clemson's talent level yet we really struggled with the line yard so you know we weren't really getting great push and then as you also mentioned our running backs weren't necessarily weren't necessarily doing a whole lot on on their end either so i i don't know it's hard for me to be too concerned because they were clearly selling out but then other teams earlier in our our schedule have also done the same thing and we were able to actually get away with it so i you know i think you got to put some of this on the play calling a bit i think we were going for a very conservative and this kind of lines up with what we were saying earlier we we had a big lead going into the second half we kind of started doing more of a prevent defense we I think we wanted some complimentary football where we're just really starting to burn the clock more and more. So we run the ball a lot. But if, if you have a team that's selling out so much against the run, I don't know. It's, 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 is it the right call to just keep kind of running it into the teeth of the defense? Um, it clearly wasn't effective. And then you also combine that with the blitzes and it caused a lot of our drives to just stall in the second half before they could get going anywhere. So I, I understand the the instinct to have a more conservative um, play calling strategy in the second half, but uh, I, I kind of wish we would have. I don't know. I, I kind of wish maybe we had gotten a little bit more aggressive at times, maybe adjusted a little bit more to what the defense was doing, as opposed to just kind of sticking with that conservative burn the clock uh, style. Yeah, I I tend to put more of this back on 
I've been one of the harshest critics of Tom Reese this year. So I get I'm, you know, changing my tune here a little bit. But at some point, if a team is that all out um, against the run and, and and putting guys in the box that are they going to run or blitz the quarterback, at some point you just got to beat them and and you got to beat them over and over and over again. And we did in the first half, and we did in the second half. But like at some point, I can't really blame Tom Reese if if Drew Pine is you know taking sack after sack after sack and never getting the ball out. Um, you know, just, just as one example, we've asked for a lot more play action. We actually threw play action at the highest clip of the year on 45% of throws in this game. Um, and the non-play action surprisingly worked better, although both were, were very successful. And so I, I just put this one less on play calling, more on the, the offense just can't be that one-dimensional. Like if they are selling out that much to say, beat us with deep passes, then you got it like then you got to pass the ball and and we were trying and we just kept taking sacks so i tend to put this one more more on the guys than i do on the coaches but man all in all one first down for 6 yards in the entire second half um we've got to get that figured out moving on from an extremely frustrating offensive second half something that is extremely exciting that you mentioned in your opening comments are punt blocks we are now up to seven. That is a Notre Dame school record. And Pete Sampson had a great article on this a couple of weeks ago. That was, I don't know, three punt blocks ago. So that, that's when we were at four. Detailing the process behind this, and I think it's pretty cool. So I just wanted to pull a couple of tidbits from the article that, that Sampson had on it over the athletic director. So we hired Brian Mason as our special teams coordinator this offseason from Cincinnati. And he's done a few things to try to drive um, more punt blocks. The first thing he did was he changed the name of the unit from the punt return team to the punt block team. And so there's a recurring, you know, theme in all of this where it's really mind over matter for this group. So on Sunday and Monday, Coach Mason conferences with a grad assistant. His name's Jesse Schmidt. And they basically map out, they draw out the plays. Um, on Tuesday, Mason talks to the punt, punt block unit after practice. They don't even practice. They just visually talk about it um, after practice. So it's an entire visualization technique. There's no practice. There's no pads on. There's no running it. On Wednesday, Freeman gives them five minutes of practice time to run what they visualized. On Thursday and Friday, they repeat the visualization where they talk about it again. They do a quick walkthrough, but they're not actually practicing it in a live um scrimmage and that's it they only practice punt blocks for five minutes and the rest is walkthroughs and verbal communication i don't know if that's how like other programs do it but it's remarkable that 90 percent of the prep here is kind of visualization and communication and then really just confidence like just saying we're the punt block team like this is what we do our job is to punt you know block punts not return punts and it's work so whatever brian mason is doing um, it's incredible. Uh, like I've never gotten so excited to watch, you know, punts in college football as I am with this team. So absolutely absurd. We're up to seven on the year. I think four games in a row now. Um, it's just expected of this unit and teams know it's coming. Like they're doing max protection stuff to not let it happen. And we keep figuring it out and dialing it up. So Brian Mason, great job that the guys on that unit, great job. Um, really fun to watch. 
Yeah, I agree. I, I haven't seen anything like this before. That that article that Samson uh, had where he was talking about this, it goes into some detail about how Mason just identifies the soft spots. So they don't really put that much time into it, as you said, Brett, but it seems like Mason really has a knack for finding the weaknesses in what the punt unit for the other team is doing. So even though, again, minimal prep, it seems like when they go in and when they're talking about it, they'll highlight to Foskey, for instance, they'll say, "Hey, if you if we put you here, if you approach if you approach the play this way, we think that you can get a one on one matchup here, and that might be enough to give you a, sh- a shot at the ball." And that's actually exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. Uh, I forgot which game it was, but um, for the amount of time that they're putting in, pretty remarkable results. And Brian Mason, just a home run hire. I, this is I can't recall ever having a special teams unit that's performed as well as we have and it's affecting everything. So even even when they get the even when the the opposing punting team gets the ball off, even if we don't get a hand on it, it seems like it's affecting how far the ball goes at times. It affects like they're rushing it a little bit more. So it seems like it's also having some other effects on our field position even when we're not necessarily blocking the punt. All right, so that we've now covered all three phases of the Navy game. Um Let's call it confusion on defense, frustration on offense. Probably a recurring theme for those two. An absolutely incredible performance by, by the special teams, um, helping us escape here in a way too close for comfort win over Navy. With that, let's move on to Boston College. You just summed up your entire sorry career here in one sentence. All right, Notre Dame has senior day coming up against Boston College. The Golden Eagles come to town with former Notre Dame quarterback transfer to BC, Phil Dracovich, returning for what would have been his senior game, interestingly enough. He's been injured the last couple of weeks. Last I checked, at least as of time of recording, he's questionable that they haven't released a status update. So a little unclear if he'll be playing or not. But Mike, this was one of my preseason sleeper picks. Maybe not to win the Atlantic in the ACC considering Clemson's over there, but someone who could certainly challenge someone that I thought was going to be one of the better offenses in the ACC. And they've absolutely disappointed to a record of three and seven with, with some really ugly moments. Um, you know, they scored three points in a loss to UConn. They lost to Clemson away force in back to back weeks by a combined score of 74 to 18. So, some really ugly football coming out of BC. What happened to this team? How did they go from, you know, really an up and coming program that I think had a lot of momentum coming into this season to really just seeing the wheels fall off? I remember when we were talking about BC, when we were previewing Notre Dame's schedule, we, we had a whole segment on the top quarterbacks that Notre Dame was going to face this year. And Phil Dracovich was one, one of those players that we talked about. And we didn't say that he necessarily would be a first round pick, but we talked about if he stayed healthy, he's someone who might be able to play himself into that conversation. Well, the problem with Phil's career, unfortunately, is that he's just, it's been just injuries, uh, you know, pretty frequently and it's, it's really slowed down his, his career. And so I think you got to start there. You mentioned he's banged up. He's missed two straight games with the shoulder injury. Uh, but on top of that, they've also had a lot of injuries on their offensive line. So they've lost four to season ending injuries. And there's another on top of that that remains out, but questionable to come back this week. You combine all that, you know, if you have a ton of injuries on your offensive line, odds are your run game is probably not going to be doing too well. You're not going to be able to get much push. Teams are going to be able to disrupt what you're trying to do. And so right now they're dead last in the country in line yards. So as a team, 
that's just 2.1. Uh, and then if, if you carry that into the yards per carry, they're, they're averaging only 2.1 yards per carry, which is, is brutal. You're not, it seems can essentially when they're approaching their offense, they can, they can just, you, they can just assume that their BC's run game is not going to be able to get going. And then I, so I think you start there. Their offense has had a lot of issues, a lot of injuries. And I think that those, that's really, those have really been the biggest factors sidelining their team this year. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into their offense in a little bit. You know, so Jerkovic, as you mentioned, has been banged up. The offense hasn't gotten going and it's a lot of teams is zeroing on Zay Flowers, who, who we'll get to in a second. One of their, star wide receivers but if teams now can focus on just isolating him it's really made this offense i think tough to get get balanced and, and to your point i think that lack of a run game's really hurt them but then this week they go on the road to nc state they're 18 point underdogs against a ranked nc state team and they come away with a road win right so right when this team looks dead right when this team looks like they might have really no life going into notre dame they pull out a huge win with their backup quarterback. So initially, I'm seeing this box score and I'm thinking, wow, that, that could be cause for concern. Like, is this team back? Do they have new life? And I went back and watched the extended highlights. Um, we should not be worried about this NC State win for Boston College appearing anything more than a really, really weird football game. Um, the Wolf the, the Wolfpack were also without their starting quarterback. And their offense sputtered. They committed four turnovers in the game, including three lost fumbles. Um, Boston College had a total of minus one rushing yards in this game and also committed three turnovers and 12 penalties themselves. So I, honestly, please don't go back and watch the extended highlights of this Boston College NC State game. It was one of the worst things you could do with a Sunday morning hangover. It was horribly unenjoyable to watch. And so the only thing to conclude from this was Boston College won a very weird, dumb football game against an NC State team that's just struggling on offense. Nothing about this Boston College team should give Notre Dame troubles. That being said, whenever that happens, Notre Dame has a tendency to make the game much closer than it should be. Definitely. Um, and I'm going to circle this back to, to Phil Dracovic. So we mentioned he's someone who's been getting, who's, who's been hurt. Um, the run game has been pretty brutal, so teams get to focus on the passing game. But, uh, Brett, if Phil Dracovic is healthy, how does that, how does that change your, your outlook? Just even for this game and also even for the season, how do you think BC would be looking if we, if there was just a healthy Phil Dracovic for the entire season? Yeah, cl- clearly better, right? And they haven't necessarily won when he's been playing, but he is a NFL talent-ish quarterback. He's projected for the fifth round. Um, so he hasn't necessarily elevated his draft stock. In fact, I think it's fallen back a little bit. I think he's kind of projected to second, third preseason. Um, and the biggest problem this year is he's got eight interceptions, um, to, to just 11 touchdowns. So the turnovers have really picked up for him. I think the bigger issue though is Boston College hasn't really figured out a way to help Zay Flower. So I referenced him. He, he's projected to be a fourth round pick. And, you know, preseason, there were talks he could be the ACC player of the year, um, you know, potential All-American. He's gotten nearly 1,000 yards and 10 touchdowns at wide receiver. And that's where if Phil Jerkovich is playing in this game, Zay Flowers gets a lot more dangerous. And that's where Boston College has a chance to do some damage. In fact, it's a matchup for the 11th game of the season that I'm a little unsure about, mostly because he is a more prototypical 
outside receiver who plays on the perimeter, whereas really all of the top wide receivers that Notre Dame's gone up against this year, to a disproportionate extent, have been really good slot receivers who play on the inside. So Jackson Smith, Najigba, Gunnar Romney, Josh Downs were all slot receivers, which means Tariq Bracey, he's our nickel corner. Tariq Bracey was the one primarily guarding them. On the outside, I think Zay Flowers is by far the toughest receiver that Cam Hart's going to go up against this year. And so that's the number one matchup I'm watching for. If Phil Jerkovich plays in this game and Zay Flowers has the better QB1 at BC getting him the ball, can Cam Hart hold up on his own or is Cam Hart going to need a lot of safety help? And if he needs a lot of safety help and, and Zay Flowers goes off and, and has a big game, that that's, that is Boston College's path to beat this, to have the Phil Jerkovich zay Flowers connection that they were hoping to have preseason. If those two are healthy and, you know, the offensive line can hold up at least a little bit, um, I think that's the, the biggest concern for, for Notre Dame going into this game. If Cam Hart locks down Zay Flowers or Phil Jerkovich isn't playing and they have a hard time getting the ball to Flowers with, with a backup, that's where I think this game becomes a lot easier for Notre Dame. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a pretty weak offense regardless, just because the run game is so abysmal. You can just focus so much on the passing game. But then if you take Phil Dracovich out of the equation, then they don't even have a passing game that they can lean on. So I agree. The one the one way that they could generate some points is if you have Phil looking pretty good and he's able to get uh, Zay Flowers involved. Now, moving on to the BC defense, their defense actually looks pretty similar to some teams we've seen in recent weeks. So Clemson and Navy come to mind. And the area of similarity here is that the presumed area of weakness is their pass defense, but they're actually pretty strong in the run game. So BC here, if you look at the line yards uh, allowed uh, per carry in each game, they rank number 32. So they're actually pretty stout against the run. They're not a team that you can necessarily just push around. But if you flip to the other side of the equation um, on, on defense, pro football focus when they're looking at their pass covers, they rank them number 118, so pretty close to dead last in the, in the country. So clearly teams, if, if you, uh, you should be able to air, you should be able to air out the ball against them. They don't exactly have a secondary that's been able to hold up against many teams this year. And that translates to the roster composition, uh, which isn't surprising. If you look at their top rated players on defense, they're, they're all defensive linemen. So the top, the front seven, Pretty solid. They hold up against the run pretty well, but the back seven is is absolutely terrible. Yeah, and just to call out a couple guys, Donovan Ezeruaku. Apologies if I got your name wrong. He's got six sacks on the year. He's their best player according to, to Pro Football Focus. Um, this is going to be the highest rated defensive line that. Uh, sorry, he's the highest rated defensive lineman that Notre Dame's played all year. Um, again, at least according to Pro Football Focus. So. He's a wrecking ball. It's going to be a tough test for Joel and Blake Fisher. You know, as I think about this as a matchup, it's kind of similar to Clemson and Navy, where we said stout run defense, susceptible against the pass, makes me really concerned, you know, if they have now a blueprint from Navy, although I don't necessarily buy that argument, um, as, as we talked about in the recap. But I was concerned going into both of those games that if you have a really tough run defense who figures out how to stop Notre Dame's running attack, you make us one-dimensional with Drew Pine. Can Drew Pine beat you for four quarters? And so far this year, the answer to that is a resounding maybe, but probably not. And so in addition to the Zay Flowers matchup, um, something's got to give here on Notre Dame's offense where it's either another Clemson-Syracuse performance, which 
by the way, surprised us. I, I don't think we necessarily saw 250 rushing yards coming in those games. But if we can replicate that against Boston College, who's a similarly stout uh, rush defense, that's one path to win. If not, Drew Pine's going to have to figure it out against the leaky Boston College defense. This is a very beatable secondary. And we said that against Navy, and he did for two quarters. The big question here is, can he do it for four? Um, that moves us into score predictions. SP Plus implies this is about a 23-point spread for favor of Notre Dame. The actual Las Vegas line right on top of it at 21 points. ESPN uh, has Notre Dame winning this game 93% of the time, so those are the stats you need to know. And as a reminder, Notre Dame as a heavy favorite as we are in this game is 0-5 against the spread. So all five of those games have been closer than what Las Vegas and SP Plus predicted. And we've lost two of them. Let's not forget the Stanford and Marshall game. So we're going into senior day. Notre Dame's a three-touchdown favorite. But, Mike, that has been our Achilles heel this year. What's your score prediction? I Anytime I get optimistic that we're finally going to be able to beat the spread as a heavy favorite, I mentioned this in the intro. I've just been burned on it. it happened this past week. So I'm not going to make the same mistake here again. I have to learn from my mistakes. So I think, look, I, I'm i optimistic that BC is not going to be able to replicate some of the gimmicky types of plays that we saw Navy do against us. So hopefully Pine holds up a little bit better. But it just seems like, and I don't really know why. I mean, I think maybe this is something that uh, Freeman will get a better pulse on in his, his second season. But it just seems like there are times this year where we kind of mail it in a bit. And it happens against these teams that on paper shouldn't match up too well against us. And so this is a pretty good example of a, a game where we're playing a a team that uh, on paper we should be able to just exploit in many different areas. But, you know, I, again, we've shown time and time again that we've, we've fallen a little bit short in these types of situations. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to – I'm going to predict that we beat them maybe – you know, it's not – I'm not predicting it's going to be a super close game, but I'm not predicting that we're going to beat the spread. I'm thinking 28-14 and then embedded within that prediction, so 14-point win – I'm thinking some of those some of those points that we get are going to be heavily aided by the defense and special teams. Um, as much as I'd like to think that our offense, uh, you know, is is going to have a better performance here, I just haven't seen I haven't seen enough of them doing anything on their own. I do think our defense will play better here. At times we look shaky against Navy, but I think I think our defense generally should hold up here a little bit better. We also might be getting some of those guys back this week, potentially Brandon Joseph, Bertrand. If those guys are healthy, I think that helps. Uh, helps here too, and and it's a traditional traditional offense. We're we're not playing a, a triple option offense, so um, I think that comes into play here too. Yeah, I have been so woeful at trying to pick games this year. Um, I feel like last year in year one we were on fire picking Notre Dame against the spread, and have absolutely crumbled this year. Um, it's you know. Pretty interesting that until the last two weeks against Duke and NC State when they had a lot of turnover help, they had three straight games where, where they failed to get to the 15-point threshold against Clemson, Wake Forest, and UConn. Again, the NC State game was fluky. Um, the Duke game was also a, a really weird game that, that they lost the week before. But this offense is really sputtered. And so the over-under prediction implies Notre Dame 33-12. to So Vegas doesn't have a lot of confidence in Boston College putting up points. If Notre Dame is going to cover the spread, 
they're gonna need to, I think, hold Boston College to like under 14 points. Um, I'm with you. I, I just have no confidence trying to pick this team as a heavy favorite, but it just feels like we can't be 0 and 6 as two score favorites, right? Like we, we've got to, you know, come off the schneid once. I, I don't really believe this pick, but I'm going to go with 31 to 7. Um, Notre Dame wins by 24 and, and covers. This is about as low confidence as I've ever felt. If you're thinking about actually putting money on college football with a bet this year, I would not bet for or against Notre Dame. I would just stop and not try to figure it out. Um, so a very low confidence, 31 to 7. Um, that's also kind of sort of assuming Jerkovic doesn't play. If he does, I have a very different prediction. Um, so I've, I've got a 31-7 Notre Dame, but about as low confidence as I've had all year. Brett, you, you should just cut your losses. That's a, you know, it's a rule in finance. If it's a sinking ship. I know. Just, it's a sunk cost. Yeah, you're just throwing more, you're throwing more money into the pit. <coughs> just gotta pick against Notre Dame. I'm picking us to win. You know, to be clear, I mentioned that, but I'm, I'm not picking us against the spread. So hopefully, hopefully I'm wrong though. It's, it is pretty, I thought the same thing last week. I was like, surely this is the week where we're going to actually beat the spread as a heavy favorite. And they, you know, absolutely proved me wrong again. So. All right. With that, let's move on to our third segment on pro football focus grades. If you had a 10th of the heart of Rutgers, you could have made all American. As it is, you just went from the third team to the prep team. All right, in our third segment today, we're going to cover pro football focus grades. We, we reference their grades a lot on this show. That They really started as a grading system to measure the performance in the, in the NFL. Uh, several years ago, they added college football to their repertoire. And so the way pro football focus makes their grades is that every player on every play gets a grade from minus two to plus two in 0.5 increments. A zero is generally kind of an average or expected grade. And so a few examples that they list on their website. In the 2009 NFC Championship game, the Green Bay Packers, I'm a huge Packer fan. I, I hate this example. They were in field goal range in overtime, and all they had to do was kick a field goal, and Brett Favre throws a ridiculously bad interception. That got Favre a grade of minus two on that play. On the flip side, when Eli Manning threw the game-winning Super Bowl touchdown to Mario Manningham, that got a plus two. Um, a minus 0.5 might be missing a wide open wide receiver, but for an incompletion. A plus 0.5 might be a really well thrown ball, but for like a seven yard completion, right? So that kind of gives you the range of outcomes. It centers around zero. It's really hard to get a minus two. It's really hard to get a plus two. Most are kind of going to be plus or minus. And then they jumble all of the individual plays together for a player and um, they consolidate them into a game grade. And over the course of the season, generally how that translates is if you're in the 90s, um, that's like all-American status. If you're 80s, you're probably an NFL caliber player. 70s, above average starter. 60s is an average starter. 50s, the guys on the bench are just as good as you. You're not that good at college football. And then they take all of those plays over the course of the season and they re-index it. So very importantly, the season grade you get is not the average of your individual games. It's sort of re-indexed, um, kind of accumulating all of the plays across the season. Again, there's a lot of subjectivity, 
there's an individual at Pro Football Focus, a team of analysts that watches each play for every single game for all 22 guys on the field at any given point in time and comes up with those numbers. And then they do the indexing on the back end to attribute how do the minus two to plus two scores translate on the zero to hundred scale. But it's really more like kind of a 40 to 100 scale or really even more like most people are falling in the, you know, 60s, 70s. And then it, it, you know, it's a pretty even bell curve. And so they're highly debated in football circles. They're generally pretty subjective. We have some things we really like about them and, and things we don't like about them. So, Mike, let's maybe start with the things we don't like, which will, on some of them, build into the things we do like. We've listed out four or five things here on, on both sides of how we kind of think about when pro football focus grade has shortcomings and when we maybe really like leaning into them. And so let's just start on the side we don't like and, and can flip back and forth here. Yeah, so you already hinted at one. You mentioned subjectivity. So these grades are subjective to the pro football focus game reviewer. So similar to a sport like gymnastics or figure skating, subjective judging of sports can be very frustrating at times. But with these Olympic sports, you at least have the world's best judges. Oftentimes, it's people who performed at a very high level or have just been in a similar type of position for a very long time and have proven themselves over many years. In football, for pro football focus, they aren't getting necessarily those people that would be the judges at the Olympics. The world's best analysts, the world's best coaches would be best suited for the grading. Well, guess what? They're making a lot of money on coaching staffs in the NFL or, or college football. They're getting paid a lot of money to figure out who the best players are, are identify talent, identify strengths and weaknesses of opposing teams. These, these analysts at Pro Football Focus, great. No offense to them. They're just not quite up to that level. So... I think that's one thing that you got to take into account when you're looking at these at these ratings. And another factor is they don't always necessarily know the scheme or the play call. And sometimes they just make mistakes. These guys are going through a lot of plays. It's not like they're getting paid millions of dollars, so they may not have the same motivation that someone on Bill Belichick's staff may have. Uh, if they screw up how they're reviewing a tape, they're not going to have Bill Belichick screaming at them and threatening to fire them. So it's a little bit different. The motivation here is a little bit a little bit different. So. Uh, I think one example that's worth mentioning here, though, on, on not knowing the scheme or the play call, circling back to that, is understanding blocking schemes. Because that's one area that can be pretty complicated. So was it a zone blocking scheme? Or was it pin in a pull? Uh, was there a total missed blocking assignment? Was there a fault in the communication? So sometimes it can be kind of hard to parse through and see what exactly the issue is. Uh, it could be a tight end who who failed to make a chip block or a running back. It just, as you're watching these plays, if you don't know the play call, it can be hard to tell where exactly the mistake is. Now, circling back to some of the other elements of the subjectivity, I'm going to use an example from Notre Dame, and that's Cam Hart. So Cam Hart grades out at a 64 so far this year. He's down from being in the 70s last year. As we mentioned, 70s, that's a solid starter. 60s is, is fairly average. But if you look at the stats this year, he's been targeted 42 times for 21 catches. So that's about two catches per game. And he's typically covering the opposing team's number one receiver on the outside. And in those situations, he's only committed five penalties. My perspective, Brett's perspective, we've discussed this uh, ad nauseum. I'll take that every single time. Now, you compare that to what he did last year. He had a grade of 71, so that would imply he's performing at a higher level, performing more at a high-end starter level. He has uh, a grade of 71 with pretty much nearly identical stats, uh, 32 catches, 66 targets for uh, 335 yards. So... That's again. That's about two and a half catches per game at near identical yards per catch. So a little tricky. I, to me, that's a a little confusing why there's why there's a gap there. And I think 
if you look at this point in particular, that's one reason a lot of people have complaints with pro football focus. They just will point to scenarios like that and they'll say, hey, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why why does this person have a higher grade in this situation? But in this very similar situation, he has a lower grade. It's just a, a situation that seems to pop up quite a bit. So I think that's the that's the first thing uh, to call out. And that's that's I think that's really the criticism you tend to hear the most with pro football focus. Yeah, and turning to our second one, it's that a lot of these categories, it's kind of related to being subjective, but a lot of them are not tied to hard stats. So that makes the, you know, it's not only that the reviewer is being subjective, but the criteria is subjective. And so, you know, a couple examples that are easier, running backs are really tied to do they break tackles and what are their yards after contact. That's pretty easy to kind of calculate, right? Like you can see when they're contacted and then you can see when they go down and how many extra yards did they get. That's pretty easy to measure over the course of a game. Tackling, that's another one. You know, the tackling grades are pretty much missed tackles divided by total tackle attempts. And if you go and rank a team's missed tackling rate against their tackling grade, there's like a one-for-one ranking on that one stat. So those are easier to see in stats. You mentioned a couple of them. Run blocking is really subjective of who's generating a hole or, you know, whose fault was it that the linebacker came through. Um, the reverse is true. Rush defense. Like, did a guy get a really great stop just because he wasn't blocked? Or did he get a great stop because he, you know, ripped through the, the offensive line and, you know, made a really great play? That starts to get really subjective. There's no metric for that, right? There's no stat you can point to to say they got so many, you know, inches of separation from the offensive line. Like, there's nothing they're tracking like that. And then you alluded to it, coverage grades get really subjective. And and I get it. It's hard. Like, they track whether or not someone was targeted, but it's hard to know, well, did they have safety help? Or was it on a scramble and a rollout and a broken play? Or did they hand off coverage or were they in zone or man-to-man? There's a lot of subjective things that goes into did they cover well? And a lot of times these reviewers, you know, the criteria they track was the guy the primary defender and was he targeted and did he give up the catch? But everything else kind of about assigning like did they do their job in coverage gets really subjective. So not only is the reviewer subjective, the second really hard part about looking at the grades is the criteria that the reviewer is trying to follow also isn't always black and white. It's not like they're getting black and white decisions, right or wrong. They're they're living in a world of gray. And I think that makes it even tougher. And then circling back to another point that we've already mentioned a few times, and all these are, are a lot of these are pretty interconnected. And that, uh, but with this one in particular, it's just inconsistencies. And with this one specifically, it relates to how the game grades tie to the season grades. So Pro Football Focus grade they they readjust their grades for players to reflect how that player looks over the course of the season. The only thing is that a lot of times there are some disconnects um, and you don't see the similarities that you would expect. So I'll use Jack Cohn as an example. His season grade last year was 83.5. But if you look at each one of his games, he only had two games with a grade above 83.5. So if you actually average his individual games from last year, he averaged a grade of 72.9. So that just seems very odd when you're looking at it to see a player who's generally shaken out somewhere in the in the low 70s at the end of the year all of a sudden, pro football focus grade is saying, oh, actually, this guy's he performed at an NFL level all season. Whereas 
at each week throughout the year, we tended to say that he was more of just a high level, high level starter. So pretty big gaps like that. That's just one in particular that people tend to really focus on is the differences between these season grades and then what you would, uh, what you're seeing week to week in the, uh, game by game grades. Yeah, I think that one is one of my biggest issues with, with pro football focus that they start with this minus two to plus two. And then it gets jarbled up in math that you can't see for the game. And then it gets jarbled up again in math that you can't see for the season. And they oftentimes just don't tie together. That's the one I don't get the most. And I think Jack Cohen's a great example. The last one is just some differences in the grading scale, both by position and by category. So we have a couple examples here. We looked at every college quarterback last year with a kind of minimum threshold of passes where they had meaningful game action, and then did the same thing for offensive linemen. The average quarterback had a grade of 77. The average offensive lineman had a grade of 72. Um, you know, last year there were 65 quarterbacks that had grades of 90 or higher. 90 or higher is kind of meant for this like elite all-American level, and there were 65 quarterbacks there were only 14 running backs that met that threshold. There were six times as many quarterbacks getting these like ultra high season grades, only 14 running backs. It's also similar for different categories of grades. So there's 131 teams, which means the median team is 65th. For passing, the 65th grade is 70, which kind of makes sense. Somewhere between, you know, an average starter and above average starter checks out. For run blocking, it's 60. For running back, it, it's a whopping 81. And then for pass coverage grade, it's 77. So we, we picked, you know, a few different categories, but that's all over the place. Like the average team is below average and terrible at run blocking, but is above average elite quasi all American status at running back. Um, yet then the individual running backs, by the way, are way lower than the quarterbacks are for grades of 90 and above. I know I'm saying a lot of things right now. Um, or th- throwing a lot of numbers out there. But what that translates to is how can the average on the same scale for one position be an 80 and the average on another system for a grade is 60? It just makes it really hard to like stare at the grades and say, you know, meaningful takeaways when you're comparing different categories or different positions. So our key takeaway on, on what the limitations are in pro football focus, they're subjective. It's hard to go from player game grades to player season grades to team season grades. There's a lot of inconsistency along the way. So as we've kind of gone through this season, we've started focusing on other elements than just rattling off kind of actual pro football focused grades and have moved into sort of some other elements or components that we still think are really insightful from pro football focus. So Mike, you want to flip the page to the things we like about pro football focus and, and why we reference it so much. Yeah, Brett. So diving more into the areas of pro football focus grade that we actually like, where we really find it useful is when the pro football focus data that we look at is more quantitative rather than qualitative, less subjective. So this is more where it's actual hard stats that you can't really dispute. That it's not really, it's not a guy who's just sitting in a chair making subjective decisions about whether or not a play was successful or not. So what I mean by this, particularly, I think in particular the area that we really like it is is with the quarterback scheme stats. We find these really insightful. So these types of stats, we mentioned them quite a bit. They track passing stats on play action, blitzes, how a quarterback is doing under pressure, 
uh, what we're doing on screen plays, how many screens we're calling, and then also how we're doing on plays where we're not calling those things. So it allows you to really compare the types of situations that you're, uh, the types of plays that your team is calling and how you're doing in them. So we've, we've called these quite a, we've referenced these quite a bit with Drew Pine. And this is a point that, that Brett has, uh, has mentioned quite a bit when we're looking at, uh, Tom Reese's, uh, play calling. And in particular, the play action ones, the play action stats here, those, they, they show quite a big discrepancy in, in how he's done when we call play action, when we don't call play action. Maybe not as much in the Navy game. But this is an area where there's been a wide gap, and these stats come from Pro Football Focus Grade, and they really kind of give you an idea of how a team is is calling plays and how how well they're actually executing. It gives you an idea of what their strengths and weaknesses are. So it's pretty informative. I think some other areas that we've some other areas that we've also discussed are depth of target. We've mentioned that Drew Pine, when you increase the depth of his target, he tends to not hold up quite as well. Adjusted completion percentage. That's another stat that we mentioned. That one you hear a little bit more in football circles. But overall, I think the takeaway with with these types of stats is these are things that you are typically not going to see in ESPN box score. They're a couple layers deeper. They're for people who really want to go into the weeds and see, okay, what is our strategy with our offensive play calling and how are we actually executing within that? Are there areas to tweak? Are there areas to improve? And I think that's where we've gotten the most we've gotten the most benefit about it. It's really informed our perspective of the quarterback position and also the offense more broadly. Yeah, breaking down the quarterback, definitely a big one. Obviously, quarterback is such a critical component of, of football. I'll quickly tick through some of the other um, stats outside the quarterback position that we really like. Wide receiver snap count by formation. So in this game, sorry, in this show, we mentioned Isaiah Flowers is primarily an outside receiver. We know that from pro football focus that he only plays in the slot about one-third of the time. Whereas Josh Downs, Gunnar Romney, and Jackson Smith Najigba are all about 70 to 80% of the time they're in the slot. So we know those matchups of whether or not they're going to go up against Tariq Bracey or Cam Hart. We know that from pro football focus. Another one, running back direction. We've talked about that one a lot, especially earlier in the year when we were trying to get the running game going. How are you doing up the middle, outside the guards, outside the tackles, on jet sweeps? That's all tracked by, by pro football focus. Um, last year we talked a lot about how Kyron Williams led the nation in broken tackles in the second half of the season. Broken tackles is a pro football focus stat. And then on defense, um, we always think sacks are a misleading stat and QB pressures are a much better indicator of how disruptive a defensive line is. So quarterback pressures is there. Um, in coverage stats, looking at the number of times a defensive back is targeted versus receptions allowed versus also total pass routes defended. Right. So if they're not even targeting you, but you have a lot of snaps where you are defending in um, in coverage and they're not even throwing the ball your way. That in and of itself is really telling that you must be playing good coverage if they're not even trying to throw to you because the guy's covered. So there's a lot of stats even just related to types of snaps, types of formation, um, what guys are doing on a play that, that's more of a black and white stat tracked by pro football focus that is more informative for us than, say, the grades. And so we've really done, I think, a better job as as we've gotten more into this podcast and throughout the course of the, the shows we've done of getting more into their stats rather than their grades. We, we think it's easier to explain. We think there's more depth and context behind those numbers than maybe some of the grading. And so pro football focus is stat keeping. Really impressive, really comprehensive. Um, one of the better platforms 
that we've at least been able to come across in college football. Definitely. And then moving back to the grades, we've mentioned a lot of the flaws with it, the inconsistencies, but I do think it is still helpful. It's, you have to, as we mentioned, you have to take them with a bit of a grain of salt. But we, we think that the season grades for both the player and the team are informative. It may not be as precise or as ironclad as just the hard stats, but I think it does give you an idea. If a team is ranked number one in pass protection, odds are they're not a team that's terrible at pass protection. So maybe some of, maybe find some inconsistencies game to game and translating to season. But we do think that if you're looking at the rankings, that's that's really the key here. Um, bringing back to my Jack Cohn example from earlier. So if we're looking at Jack Cohn's grade, I mentioned there was a mismatch there between each game and then his season grade. His season grade was pretty high. It was in the 80s, implies a NFL starter level. But if you dive a little deeper into the relative rankings, he was number 36 among starters. So to me, again, there's a little bit of mismatch there. But what's more important is that it gives you an idea of where he stacks up within the rest of college football. And then that also gives you an ability to compare – how a certain team is doing versus other teams in a given year and then also across many seasons. Another point here is ND, if we're, if we're using this, uh, potential use of pro football focus grades. Uh, one takeaway is Notre Dame has only one starting QB in the top 30 under Kelly. So if you're using these directional grades to give you an insight into how Notre Dame is developing QBs, it would tell you that they're not doing it nearly at the level that schools like Alabama or Ohio State or, or, uh, or Oklahoma are. Not a surprise, but again, these directional grades, they kind of match up what, what you're seeing. So I, I do think that they are helpful when you're trying to come up with takeaways like this. And it also helps uh, – some of these takeaways can help suggest why you're seeing some some big differences in big game results. And I, I think another element of it – we mentioned quarterbacks, but pass coverage, that's another area that's a little tricky to totally nail down exactly how someone's doing. It's, it's an area of football that's more subjective. Uh, passing yards per game, that can be a little tricky to parse through. That's an area where the hard stats maybe aren't necessarily, uh, you know, indicative of, of, of what exactly is happening in a game. Could you just be playing a run heavy team? Um, are the stats really good or bad? Are they based on a number of sacks and disruption from the front seven? If the front seven's really good, it could be making the secondary look better than they would otherwise. So I think in situations like that, the pro football focus grades directionally can be really helpful because, I think for quarterback, we, we were talking about it just a second ago. I think the quarterback, the hard stats that we use for quarterback, those are really helpful, and it seems hard to it seems hard to dispute a lot of those. I think those give you a really good picture of how the quarterback's actually doing. But for, for some of these areas, like how the secondary is doing, I think these directional grades from Pro Football Focus grade are actually really helpful, and um, I think they really give you an idea of how uh, you know how 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 strong a team is is or isn't in these areas. Yeah, and, you know, just an example of that, we said Navy had the 129th best secondary, or really the third worst, I guess. It's out of 131 teams. Are they really 129? Because that's what Pro Football Focus says they are. I, I don't know, but if they're 129th, I just know they're really bad, right? That The takeaway isn't necessarily to get super precise, but it's a directional takeaway that they're bad. Or Notre Dame's rush defense is ranked 55th per Pro Football Focus, does that mean they're exactly 55th, like they're exactly, you know, kind of average mediocre in the country? I don't know, but I know they're not really good, and I know they're not, you know, terrible. That They're neither elite nor horrible, and they're somewhere in the middle of the pack. Are they 40th, or are they 70th, or are they actually 55th, like Pro Football Focus says? I don't know, but directionally, they're somewhere in the middle. So I think the team rankings directional is is kind of the way to, to look and, and think about them. 
So just, just to put a bow on pro football focus, we know it's controversial. There's a lot of people on Twitter and on message boards that are like, they're terrible and pro football focus doesn't know what they're doing. The grades are subjective. We, we completely agree. They're kind of hard to parse through. They're not always the most consistent from game to game or season to season or, or from types of, um, you know, the different categories of grades, but they bring us a lot of really cool stats. You know, I think two things we really tracked last year was Kyron Williams as a missed tackling machine. We don't know that storyline without the data from Pro Football Focus or Jack Cohn, where we really made a big movement at the bye week where we went from him going in more of a deep passing game to a short passing game. And Brian Kelly openly talked about it, and it was a huge storyline in the Notre Dame football season. We were able to track that statistically by looking at average depth of target or this year. Um, early in the year, we were doing a lot more runs up the middle. They were getting bogged down. It was over a third of our rushes. Now runs up the middle are only 20% of our rushes. And we've seen the perimeter running game really bring new life into this offense. In our biggest matchups of the year against Clemson and, and Syracuse, we're able to talk about those storylines because of the stats that Pro Football Focus provides. So we're big proponents of Pro Football Focus. We reference it a lot on the show. They're a huge source for a lot of the data that we talk about in the background. Um, we're going to continue to evolve how we talk about those underlying stats, probably try to focus, again, more on stats, less on the grades. When we reference grades, we'll try to do a good job of you know referencing where it's kind of directional and, and informative versus maybe more of a hard-line stat where we're, we're talking about. Um, but pro football focus, a great data source, a lot of fun ways to slice and dice data, and, and a big part of the show that we do. Definitely. All right. With that, go Irish. Beat Eagles. Go Irish. Beat Eagles.